It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Amy, best part of last week. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just really enjoying this fall weather and the colors. Me too. This It seems like the last week or two, the colors have been awesome. So, I've been doing... I just don't like the leaves falling so soon. I know. I like been taking some walks. And I have to say, there's a house in our neighborhood that goes all out. They do this, like, pirate theme, like Pirates of the Caribbean, like from Disneyland, and a mini haunted house. <laughs> And it's so good. If you, I don't know if you've yes. been by it. Well, I, you told told me about it, and you were not exaggerating in I any way, shape, or form. They go all out. And yeah, what I have to say, when COVID first hit, the man at that house set it up in March, right after, and he put all these little Mickey Mouse faces, mm-hmm. Mickey Mouses, all over. And he'd have like, how many Mickey Mouses can you find? Aww. At the time, my youngest was in fifth grade. We, I mean, we didn't know what to do, so mm-hmm. we were bored, and we'd go there. And, and we count the Mickey. And we count them, and he'd add. Aww. So it was a sweet thing that he yeah. had set up. Just kind of. There's a neighborhood in Sherwood yeah. that has. Like, oh, they do pirates. Pirate pirate yes, I mean, you, my friend lives over yes, there. Yes, I watched Huge. her with um, at work, and yeah, I just cool. love that. It yeah. just makes me happy. Very cool. So I found this story with 81 year old Paul Harvey. He became a Twitter sensation last September after his son posted a two-minute piece that he had written with just four notes, F natural, A, D, and B natural. His son, Nick, had posted online to show how musical ability can survive memory loss. Oh, yeah. Because, sadly, Paul has been in a home that cares for patients with dementia for the last five years. So it was recorded by the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, and the proceeds are going to the Alzheimer's Society and Music for Dementia, a program that works for people with the condition to have free access to use music as part of their care, which I think is perfect. Right, yeah. Music was always central in Paul Harvey's life. He studied piano at Hall School of Music and became a composer. His Roomba Takata is still being used for piano exams for sixth graders, I guess. Wow. He even appeared on the BBC Home Service in 1964 as a concert pianist. After his son was born, though, he turned his attention to becoming a music teacher, where he spent 20 years teaching at the Imberhome School one of his pupils was Nick Van Eed from The Cutting Crew. Oh. They have that famous hit ballad, I Just Died in Your Arms. Oh, that was okay. one of his students. Wow. So Paul was invited to conduct the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra playing two of his compositions. According to Paul, he said, it made me feel alive. I couldn't believe that an orchestra was playing my music and I was standing in front of them conducting oh. them. I hadn't conducted in such a long time before this. It was such a thrill wasn't just Paul who was emotional over it. His son, Nick, was as well. Dad was having a particularly bad day at the time. It was fascinating how Dad was getting at the piano, and it brought him back to me. For the first time in years, he got active again. It really brought him back to life again. He's playing the piano more than he has in eight years. Have you seen the Tony Bennett concert with Lady Gaga? Oh, my gosh. Same type of thing where he's fighting dementia, too. It must be somewhere in the brain. I mean, I was just saying earlier, Glenn Campbell, too. It's like he could play beautifully 
and he had Alzheimer's. That's so still it's just, that just part of there. Yeah. yeah. And um, so anyway, the campaign director at Music for Dementia noted that it was very emotional to see Paul beyond his diagnosis and able to interact with the musicians was just beautiful. Aww. He was in his element again, and it was all thanks to music. Yeah. I just, I loved it. Sweet. I recently saw this Instagram post of Paul Newman. The caption read, this is Paul Newman. After serving as a gunner in World War II, he became an actor. I had no idea. I know. While becoming an actor, he became a race car driver. While becoming a race car driver, he became a philanthropist who eventually donated a third of a billion dollars to charity. Wow. While he was doing all of that, Paul Newman remained faithful to his wife for over 50 years. So, okay, that post blew me away. But I especially just love that last sentence that he remained faithful to his wife for over 50 years. 50 years. I mean, so I knew he was a well-respected actor. I mean, let's say it. He's a legend, yeah. right? I remember my older brothers and sisters being huge fans of Butch Cassidy. And Sundance handsome, kid. like... You wouldn't believe. Yeah. Yeah. Rug- ruggedly handsome. Yeah. I was too young to go see the movie. I've only seen parts of it even still. I want to see the movie, you know, in its entirety, but... I was so intrigued, I decided to read up on him. Paul Newman was born January 26, 1925 in Cleveland, Ohio. So your dad's age. My dad's age, yes. Yeah, which I think was also kind of drew my heart there. Mm -hmm. Um, But his mother loved creative arts, and I think passed that on to Paul. That's where he probably got his little acting bug. But before his career in Hollywood... Paul enlisted in the Navy right after high school, joining the V-12 program at Yale in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, his colorblindness made him ineligible to fly. So instead, he was shipped off to basic training and ended up becoming a gunner and a rear seat uh, radio man for torpedo bombers. He was stationed at Barber's Point in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he was part of a squadron meant to train replacement pilots for the war effort. Uh, he certainly saw his share of combat during his time in the Pacific and was decorated for it. He spent three years in service and was discharged from the Navy in 1946. He used the GI Bill to enroll um, in Kenya College in Ohio and received a BA in both drama and economics. So he, Interesting combo. I know. <laughs> and, and, and so he went on to do over, what, 60 films during his 50 wow, years in the business. But all... Although he was this prolific Hollywood actor, his home was Westport, Connecticut, where he lived with his wife, Joanne Woodward, who is an accomplished actress. They shared six daughters together through their blended marriage. And I think I admire most about Paul Newman is his philanthropic work and charitable contributions. I'm just so curious. So they had six daughters. It's like Brady Bunch, but, but all three were all girls. Three and three or uh, four and two? Or I, I don't know. Oh, but okay. I, yeah. Just ended up with, with six. six girls. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's pretty, yeah. So I just read his book that he co-authored with A.H. Hotchner. It's In Pursuit of Common Good, 25 Years of Improving the World, One Bottle of Salad Dressing at a Time. Oh, that's awesome. A. E. Hoshner is a dear friend of his, and he's also he's a writer, biographer. He's probably known for writing about uh, Hemingway. He's, mm. He was friends mm-hmm. with Hemingway and wrote about him. And he's a playwright. But they went on together to create this salad dressing business. It all began one night in December of 1980. It's like a week before Christmas. Paul and Hosh, as he called them, <laughs> were in Paul's barn. This is Westport, you know, Connecticut. Connecticut. They're making a huge batch of salad dressing for his family and friends. 
they're pouring this salad dressing in these old antique wine bottles and they're hammering the corks in to seal them. And I just love reading this. It's so charming. These two men mucking around making the salad dressing to give as Christmas mm-hmm. gifts. Two probably pretty manly men. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's, I just f- thought that was pretty sweet. But I guess Paul's salad dressing was such a hit, like in his own family, he would make a batch before he'd leave for a movie shoot. That's funny. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of unique for the time because it consisted of olive oil, red wine vinegar, fresh herbs, garlic, and onions. At the time, most salad dressings were made with, like, vegetable oil, mm. apple cider vinegar, and, like, a salad seasoning packet. Mm-hmm. I can see my mom doing that. But anyways... You know, they tossed around the idea, should we maybe open a restaurant, you know, and serve Paul's salad dressing? Mm -hmm. Um, They just kind of were thinking about it. Paul, he took his salad dressing so seriously, he would bring it to restaurants. Like, he'd go out to eat. (laughs) He would bring it, even to the fancy ones, he would ask for his salad to be served with no No dressing. dressing. Oh, that's hilarious. But finally, the two decided to sell it to supermarkets. And I just love this. Their Their office was Paul's backyard pool. With, you know, they're sitting in their pool chairs along the pool, coming up with all of this. They're tired. This sounds like a movie in itself. It is. And it kind of has that kind of spaghetti western Mm -hmm. feel to it. It's like as I'm reading this. But so, Paul, his title was President, the Salad King of New England, (laughs) and Hodge, Vice President of Salad King. Oh, that's funny. So, again, they really envision that they're going to be putting this salad dressing in antique bottles with like parchment, you know, labels. And they're trying to hustle this. They're talking to people, various bottling companies. Mm-hmm. No, a lot of people didn't take them very seriously. And it took them a while to find a manufacturer. Finally, they settled on um, Ken's Steakhouse salad mm. dressing. It's mm-hmm. still around today. But it was not an easy road because Paul insisted on all natural ingredients and no preservatives, which at the time, because this is the early 80s, was really unheard of. You know, he would not back down. It took them months going back and forth with the chemist at this bottling manufacturer to kind of settle on a taste. Because you make something at home and then to replicate it, it takes a lot of finessing. Yeah. But And again, back in the day, then salad dressing was full of preservatives. Mm-hmm. And so they really were did not want any of that in their salad dressing. But interestingly, the combination of the olive oil and the red wine vinegar kind of created its own natural preservative. So it was able to kind of stand up against the competition on its shelf life. So that's I thought that was kind Their of balsamic interesting. vinegar, yeah, or, or balsamic salad dressing is my favorite. It's yeah, it's, it's very tasty. Yeah. I mean, I think everything they've really pretty good. So they finally decided on this to make it, but they had to use dehydrated onion and garlic, which they really didn't like. That was a big setback for that's them. Funny. And they also couldn't they couldn't go with the antique bottles. They had to go with like the typical industry standard because of the compatibility with like the bottling machines. And of course the parchment <laughs> paper was out the door. They had to go with standard labels. Someone said, Hey, put put Paul's face on it because you know, he's this you know famous. Famous. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, we could use the Hollywood theme. Mm-hmm. And then they they finally decided to use his face, but that decision of saying he's gonna use his face on the bottle made him ultimately decide 100% of the profits are going to go to charities. And I just, I thought that was just so, I just really touched my heart. I mean, I think it speaks to his character. Oh, absolutely. Because he just felt it was too self-serving. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to have my name on a label and then collect money the from money. this. Yeah. So I just really admire that about him. And it's just amazing to me from the very early stages of Newman's Own, the company 
name they decided on, that they did things totally different and they really stuck to their values. And it's funny, at one point they were concerned about their competition they get about Wishbone and Kraft, which is really popular at the time and took up a lot of shelf. They got Martha Stewart to be a blind judge and test. And she thought, I guess, you know, Newman's own well, beat the competition. Good. Really, Doesn't surprise you know, me. Because the yeah. other stuff just tastes, you taste the preservatives. And, and especially compared to back then. I mean, yeah. now we have lots of more natural. In the refrigerated and, section. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To launch the salad, I mean, they did no commercials and no advertising. So they just did a launch at a restaurant, and it wasn't even a fine <laughs> establishment. But the bottling manufacturer invited, like, head buyers of grocery stores, newspaper, TV stations. Paul and his wife did this, like, love song to debut the salad dressing. Oh, so the group's so is there. And Gene Shalit, he was at the Today Show, but okay, <laughs> he was the film critic. But he attended, and he had this high-praise monologue that kind of boasts of Newman's acting and then the salad dressing, oh, kind that's... of clever mm-hmm. little thing. But their approach, you know, sounds offbeat and even quirky, but... The salad dressing was a huge success immediately, like from the beginning. And they, I think they were shocked. Like they didn't think it would I'm be. I'm so happy to hear that because yeah. I would think it would have taken a long time. No, it, to... it was like, I mean, immediately. They were like. Good. Their salsas even. Yeah. They got, better. yeah, they, they got a lot of fan mail, which is fun to read in the book, They to read the fan mail. And I love the stories that I don't know. I just became more aware of them that are on the back of their labels, like the one that appeared on their first olive oil and vinegar. It read, "Why, why, why market this all natural, no nonsense, kick in the derriere?" <laughs> in the words of the neighbors, for years at Christmas, old pal Hotchner and I bottled this concoction for friends. The claim was deafening. The repeat order staggering. This year, they changed us to the furnace, and we brewed thirty gallons of my own excellence. Enough, I said. Let's go public. I'm out of the basement and onto the shelf. P. Laquista Newman. That was kind of his little name for himself. But I just love their humor and whimsy. And then not too long after, more salad dressings like Parmesan and roasted garlic. And then soon was next the spaghetti sauce. In true Paul Newman fashion, it started at home. He was back from a movie shoot, came home, pulled out from the cupboard some spaghetti sauce and pasta. And after preparing it, he was like horrified at the taste. And he's like, I got to do something about this. So he came up with his own chunky style uh, named Industrial Strength, all-natural, Venetian-style spaghetti sauce. And again, his version was unlike anything at the time because t- most were like purees mm-hmm. and they were loaded with sugar and not super flavorful. I think they were kind of meant for people to take home and finesse. But Paul wanted all-natural ingredients, chunks of tomatoes, chopped peppers, onions, and garlic. So he met with lots of resistance because it was hard for machinery to deposit that mm. chunky sauce into the into jars. The- but they finally ended up someone suited for the job. But I'm just so, I just so impressed with no matter what the opposition they face, they just stay true to their integrity, the products they mm-hmm. produce. And I do wonder why he was so, such a proponent for all natural. Early. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's how they cooked. I mm-hmm. mean, they were, he loved to, they, he liked to cook and mm-hmm. he kind of, the way he describes how he cooked was kind of almost. I mean, um, it's just ahead of his yeah, time. It's ahead I of mean, the time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the whole natural ingredients too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, we take that. I mean, we see that in stores everywhere, but. He really yeah, was the a fir- trailblazer with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Soon after came, like you said, the salsa popcorn pretzels. They used to have some pretzels that were like rye. Oh, okay. Bread pretzel. I can't Ooh. find them now. They had a lot of protein in them. Oh, I was so excited because they tasted good. And, yeah, really good. But 
They must not. Not as many people must have liked Liked it. Well, too bad. I know. His wife, Joanne, came up with the old-fashioned roadside virgin lemonade, which my daughter Lucy loves. And I just thought it was so impressive that he was doing all of this while having this movie career. Like, he talks about him filming with, like, Tom Cruise (laughs) and that, Mm. is it, the um, Color of Money. Mm -hmm. And he'd be taking phone calls and doing business between takes, you know. Now I have to watch that movie. I haven't seen that movie, so I'm going to have to watch that and think of him doing this in the... Interim. Yeah. And the first year, Paul and Hotch gave their profits from Newman's Own to their alma maters. Uh, Paul to Kenyon College and then Yale University School of Drama. Hotch to St. Louis Scholarship Foundation and then Washington University's Performing Arts. And so over the years, they've donated to all sorts of charities like Memorial Sloan, Kettering Cancer Center, Lahey Clinic, New York Foundling Hospital, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, Harlem Restoration Project, American Foundation for AIDS Research. I mean, just to name a few, it is really lengthy. They also receive letters from people. And this one, one story stuck out to me from Sister Carol. From she's, it's from she's from Hope Rural School in Florida. And she wrote to Paul that her school bus, that they used to transport students who are migrant workers from the citrus crops back to school was on its last leg. And they did a new one, which would cost 26000 Paul and Hotch phoned her back Aww. and said that they would help her and they, you know, would love to send a check the same day. Aww. I just love that. But now I'm so curious with what Hotch looks like, too. Yeah. Going to have to look that you up. You have to look them up. But um, during their fourth year of business, Paul woke up one morning and felt that, you know, something was missing, which he wanted to do something more. And it's funny, again, it's just this kind of whimsy in the book, but it said, it's funny because Hodge had a similar epiphany. And so over the years, they had visited a a lot of children in hospitals all over the country battling terminal diseases. And their hearts kind of led them back to those children. And they decided they wanted to create a unique kind of uplifting experience, some sort of camp facility for them. What good guys. I know. And this is is on all... On the side. Yeah. You know? On the down low. Just and not just doing publicity. You know. Yeah. So they did a lot of research. I mean, they visited all sorts of camps catering to children with cancer and terminal diseases just to kind of gain insight. Paul and Hotch spoke to doctors and prof- health professionals. They really wanted to gain their approval first. And they envisioned a camp that would be unlike anything they've seen. They didn't want the typical institutional camp. Paul described it. He wanted to be a place for kids to forget their health concerns, their treatments, their mm-hmm. hospital stays. A place that was amusing, but not Disney-like. And I, mm. I was like, mm, I thought that was a, I'm a huge Disney fan. Yeah. but who isn't? I know. But they named the camp Hole in the Wall Gang for the hideout of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Even more reason for me to watch that movie because yeah. I want to know. Yeah. And the mm. duo came up with the right spot for the camp. You know, it's funny. They found a, a site, and it was an old Boy Scout camp. They fixed it up, the, the um, dining hall and the cabins. And then they found out right next door was going to be a camp for just a he- regular healthy kids. And it really upset mm. them. They just didn't want to see sickly kids and healthy kids sharing the shoreline. And so yeah. they left, aborted, even though they put all that money into it. Mm. They ended up settling on 300 acres for in Ashford, Connecticut. And it's beautiful. I mean, it had wildflowers. It's, you know, a pond. It sounds really amazing. And they came up with 50% of the uh, money to develop the camp, but they had so many, because so many people heard about it, they had so many donations. Someone donated an Olympic-sized pool, 
a local mattress company donated 250 mattresses. Even a state legislature presented them with a check to cover the boathouse. I just love the fact mm. that this that people are just believing in this cause, you know. And coming together. Coming together. Making something huge, you know, right. everybody adding little pieces to, to it. Make yeah. Just something ginormous. And when designing the camp, they, you know, sought the advice of physicians to ensure the safety and accommodating these children with the special health needs. Paul really wanted a Western theme. He was surprised about that. And log cabins for the campers. Their dining hall was built in a Shaker-style barn. The camp was equipped with an infirmary capable of providing, like, chemotherapy. For mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. some of these campers are still going to need care. Through, right. You know. And any sort of treatment that they might be needed. They even had a helicopter pad for Life Flight to get campers to the nearby hospital in New Haven. So they really thought of everything. The whole thing. The furniture for the camp was unconventional, too. They gathered from, like, flea markets and thrift stores all around the country. They really wanted the experience to be almost, as Paul said, cinematic. Mm-hmm. They're walking on a, you know, stage of a movie, you know, or a set of a movie, rather. I'm sorry. Um, I love that it's, like, sustainable, too, going yeah. on to flea markets. Right. And, like, once again, way is, before his time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love that they were among the first counselors when the camp opened in 1988. <laughs> And Can you imagine why? I know. And having, yeah. And the kids, they loved it. So many cool things happened, like, organically. Besides the fact that these kids were able to, like, horseback ride or ride a boat that they've not been able to do. Mm-hmm. But they got to share with each other the heaviness of being, you know, being ter- terminally ill. Like, in the late night talks in their bunks. All that kind of community and support. That they wouldn't have without They wouldn't have. Like you don't get to, you know, go yeah. to camp with someone like you. They talk about, you know, painting on another child's head that's bald like mm-hmm. you you know mm-hmm. and just having that that community so and i loved it night the counselors would come back and they would share their observations you know they really were like what's working what are the hiccups they really wanted to just constantly improve the campers experience and of course there were tears at the end of, mm-hmm. of camp by the campers and counselors i mean i have to just say this camp's free they didn't charge mm-hmm. anything for any of these mm-hmm. for these kiddos so that's I just is it still going on today? It's still yes, totally it's going on today. Wow. And like I looked at the board of directors, I think I was telling you on one of our runs, Bradley Cooper is one of the. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so it's just I, I love that, that it's still going on. Yeah. yeah. And what I also love in the off season, they they offered this camp to families or medical care prof- professionals that mm-hmm. need a respite. In the nineties, they offered the camp to children with HIV, and they called it an mm. an immunology session, not to stigmatize these campers. And also, it was also the hope of Paul and Hotch to hope that um, other camps like Hole in the Wall Gang Camp would be built in other parts of the country and maybe around the world. What sweet guys. And and, I mean, I'm just blown away with just their tender hearts. Their tender hearts. I mean, just... And talk about the ripple effect, because that's exactly what happened. There are camps in Florida, New York, Ireland, UK, France, Africa, Costa Rica, Jordan, Japan, just to name a few locations. so awesome. Paul and Hotch were involved in those camps too, and they bear the name of uh, the whole wall gang camp with, and then whatever the name, whatever the location is. Mm-hmm. But they would um, sometimes, you know, they'd be provide the seed money or or consulting. At times, they'd even help run the camp in the beginning stages just to get it off the ground. I'm just seriously touching on just the surface with these with these guys and the incredible work and outreach this nonprofit has accomplished over the years. 
Sadly, uh, September 26, 2008, Paul passed away from lung cancer in his home in Westport, Connecticut. I just love their heart, Paul and Hotch, mm-hmm. their desire to improve the world. One bottle of salad dressing at a time. So but I just so enjoy reading their story of creating a wonderful nonprofit, Newman's Own, and just fascinated by their entrepreneurial spirit and commitment to the integrity of their products, plus unconventional way, not going the traditional yeah. way. And I checked out and their, holding their ground. And with holding that. their they ground, wouldn't, they wouldn't. It just speaks waver. to who they are and yeah. and what they were able to accomplish. But I checked their website, and actually, since their date start date in 1982, they have given away more than 550 million dollars, so helping people around the world, which is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel good about buying Newman's own salsa. I know. They have Oreos. Right. Oreos. I shouldn't say we Oreos, love, but we love those sam- sandwich cookies. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. And I know I've said this before, but I just love learning about these inspiring people we talk about me on our podcast. Too. I mean, it inspires me. Like, it makes me think, what can I do Especially in a Especially when they're way? just talking yeah. about a, sal- a, a bottle of salad dressing. I know. It made me smile, but also gave me a new perspective on salad dressing. Yeah, for, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> What could be better than to hold your hand out to people who are less fortunate than you are? Paul Newman. You know, Veterans Day is coming in a couple weeks, and I want to believe that. I know. I want to honor my dad, Ralph Rollins Pruitt, for his service in the military. I'm the youngest of four, and by the time I came into the picture, my dad was ending his military career. But I have fond memories as a little girl. Maybe I'm like three or four going into Boston with my mom to meet my dad for lunch aboard the ship, the Bib, which he was the commander. Oh, that's so cool. I, I just remember loving the grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> I ate aboard the ship. But um, Was it real cheese or was it? Like it was the- probably grilled cheese, you know. But it just was like a special mm-hmm. thing. And the that ship seemed huge to me, mm-hmm. you know, mammoth. But... I don't know. It was just really... Government cheese, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was. It It probably was government cheese. But just to give you a little bit about my dad, he was born March 17th, 1925. So, yeah. He shares the birthday with my brother. St. Patrick's Day was always huge. My mom would make cakes with, Mm. you know, shamrocks and everything on it. But he was born in Concord, uh, New Hampshire. And when he was five, his parents moved to West Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at seven, he was diagnosed with purse disease in what his right that? hip. Well, so he said he remembered going to the movie theater and standing up and being very stiff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went all around, but they finally ended up at the Shriners Hospital, and he got diagnosed with it. Um, but they put him in a cast from his, like, whole body and um, secured his leg in this, like, kind of suspension for four months. Oh, my gosh. And the only thing I had to look Poor at guy. apparently was like some train tracks. So he would oh. watch that going back and forth at seven. And then they sent him home. He said he had to lay flat in the car to get home. And oh he was gosh. at home for four months. Oh, my gosh. But what I can say about that with my dad, I think that time and traction and isolation, it made him the patient man that I knew. He was mm. the patient mm-hmm. person in my life. He learned that at seven years seven old. Seven years old. <laughs> And then a couple years later, he joined the Boy Scouts, which I love. Re- I, I love this. One of the annual hikes his troop participated in was from Manoa, Pennsylvania, to Valley Forge. They mm. followed the route of General George Washington, mm-hmm. and just really cool. The whole total distance was like twenty three miles. Wow! Over a weekend, it's in February, mm-hmm. so that's really cold. 
Which I just I'd thought, be out right there. With I the would too. But I thought that was really cool. But then after a lot of work, he got his eagle, and in the summer of 1939, he attended a Boy Scout event at the World's Fair in Flushing, Long Island. He had lunch with Henry Ford because wow. he was there. He wanted to meet some Eagle Scouts, mm-hmm. and he, he somehow got Henry to, Ford wanted to. Yeah, Henry that Ford so did. Cool. So he got him and his friend got so to have lunch. So he went from Philadelphia to New York for this for this for this um, event. Yeah, Expo. He also got to meet FDR that weekend. Oh. He was there. I guess that it, that time. I guess that's what kind of happened. I don't really. It just seemed oh. like a star star studded yeah. weekend for my dad. But and then after Boy Scouts, he became involved in Sea Scouts. My sister and my two brothers were in Sea Scouts back east, and so it's similar to mm-hmm. Boy Scouts, which are like it's more you know sailing water based. Water based. Mm-hmm. So. But then after the attack on Pearl Harbor, so my dad was probably like 16 at the time, he decided he wanted to get involved. So he enrolled in an accelerated course um, so he could finish high school to get into the um, U.S. Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point on Long Island. Oh my gosh, so young. So young. So he served in uh, World War II for two years, 44 to 46, and then was you know commissioned in the Coast Guard until he retired in 1971. So... But, my, you know, growing up, my dad did not talk much about the war, which I wish I asked him more mm-hmm. when he was alive. Just that's it's one of my regrets. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know because you don't want to trigger right. emotions and feelings and stuff that are, are going to be painful for them. Right. But at the same time, yeah, it, it's hard. It's, it's hard really, place. yeah. So I feel, I look so back I on that. that. After he retired from the Coast Guard, he worked in the private sector as a marine surveyor until he retired in 1995. So that's like you... He would like when there was like water, water or oil spills, he'd go and survey that or hmm. damage or barges. Mm. So he, that was kind of his, his very marine specialty. Specialty, was yeah. Surveying. Surveying. But he finally retired at 70. So he retired okay. once and then went back to work kind mm-hmm. of like as a consultant. He had this, he had the strongest work ethic that I, I just really was so impressed. But, and then in retirement, my parents traveled and he spent a lot of time with us kids. They would also go to Romania and do some work there with, you know, orphanages. That's so uh, sweet. But he was just a sweet man. His, he was always the glass half full mm-hmm. and always chipper no matter what. Like I, I say that with a smile because he had health problems. <laughs> he had uh, colon cancer and aortic aneurysm, quad bypass surgery, prostate, and bladder cancer. Oh, my goodness. And so my sister, we were always kind of like the the ground control team, (laughs) you know? And I I was support. My sister being a... Reality. Being a doctor, physician, she kind of always would do the medical piece. And she'd always go to the doctor saying, don't worry. He looks horrible on paper. (laughs) He's an Energizer bunny. And he would just power through all of that. And really with a smile on his face. And I would always be just like, even when... You know, he passed away. Like, I remember just being there like, I can't believe it because he just always seemed to keep going. Keep going. So I'm just just grateful that I'm I so had that relationship. That and I just I just miss his, yeah. that spirit. But, um, yeah. But it sounds like you have some really good memories. Yeah. He did good. He did. My favorite part, getting to, <laughs> getting to know Amy better. <laughs> What is your favorite Halloween candy? Well, I kind of like you. I do love the Baby Ruth or Paydays. Oh. Because they're kind of like the Baby Ruth without the chocolate. Nougat without the chocolate. Yeah. Do you have any hairdo regrets? Well, I had the claw back 
you know, which I don't know what but the you like is. blue dry blue. You know, you dried up your um, bangs, so they're kind of straight. <laughs> oh, up. like and flock then of eagles, spray. yeah, or flock of seagulls, yeah. or whatever that was. And then you kind of hairspray. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm gonna have to see pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Halloween costume? I think my favorite was my mom made me a cone. So my body was like a cone, and then she we she made like a hat that was the ice cream. <laughs> cone. Oh, I was probably like in sixth grade, fifth grade. You were a cone, and in fifth grade I was the, the flower, the big so. flower. Um, do you have a favorite horror movie? I kind of like that one. With I just recently rewatched that one with Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. Um, what lies? What lies beneath? beneath. Yeah. I, I like that one. I'm kind like of more thrillers. of a mystery. I'm yeah, more of a thriller. Yeah, you know, I I Knives Out, which is oh, kind of a mystery. Cute. Yeah, yeah that that's more cute. my speed. But yeah, those are both good. What is? And I'm with you that I don't see any bad personality characteristics, but what would you claim to be your worst personality characteristic? Um, I awkward because I'm so shy. I think sometimes I come across and I, I'll say something that's like out of context or in a weird way because mm-hmm. I feel I'm feeling awkward. So, Oh, that's just quirky and fun. Yeah. That's not awkward. Fun. Hey. Service to others is the rent you pay for the room here on earth. Muhammad Ali. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.